join me in prayer. Restore us again, O God of hosts. Show the light of your countenance, and we shall be whole. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Again, we return to the vineyard. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you're going to be saying to yourself, again? To the vineyard again? Really, lectionary? Really, St. Matthew? Really. Here we are again. This is, the, this is the third gospel reading in a row about the vineyard, and you'll remember that the vineyard as an image is an important image for Israel and the prophets. It's also important, an important image referring not just to the Israel of the Old Testament, but to the church today, and of course to us too, as inheritors of the new covenant. You see, the vineyard is, a, is an image not only used by Jesus here to refer to the kingdom of God, but it's used by Isaiah in chapter 5 in our first reading, and in Psalm 80, the vineyard that comes out of Egypt. It's an image that Jesus uses yet again about us as individuals in John chapter 15 when he talks about the vine and the branches, which of course is in a vineyard. And so this passage is full of imagery, just chocked full of specific type of, a specific type of imagery called allegory. allegory. This is a particularly allegorical parable where things actually represent other things. You might say, well, all parables represent things. That's true. But this is a type of parable where there's a one-to-one representation. That's what allegory typically does. And so here we see in this parable of our Lord this one-to-one relationship where the owner is God, the vineyard is God's kingdom of Israel, and by extension the church, The fruit is righteous deeds. The tenants are religious leaders. The servants are the prophets. And of course, the son, no big surprise here, is Jesus. And we all understand that readily enough, I think, right? If you've heard a sermon on this before, you probably get that. But so too should we understand that in the context of Matthew's gospel in chapter 21... Jesus has done some things, right? So when we look at where this parable occurs in Matthew 21, we see what is the big thing that's happened in his life. Those of you that have your Bibles open, if you don't, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew 21, if you have one with you. What do we see has just happened in Jesus' life? It's the very first thing in the chapter. It's real easy if your Bible has subheadings. (laughs) Thank you. The triumphal entry, right? The triumphal entry into Jerusalem, also known as Palm Sunday, right? We celebrate that liturgically uh, back at the end of Lent, right? So Jesus has entered into Jerusalem to shouts of, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then... Jesus goes on to do something else in verse 11. He cleanses the temple. 
right? He cleanses the temple. That's where he flips over the tables and talks about the fact that the temple is not a place for a den of robbers, but is a house of prayer. After that is the cursing of the fig tree, which is another image for Israel. Then he refuses to answer the chief priests and the elders in the middle of the temple, and he's just told those same leaders, the chief priests and the elders, that the repentant thieves and sex workers, if we want to put it in modern parlance, are going into the kingdom before them. Huh. Then comes this parable. Jesus is on a roll in who he's offended, literally upended, cursed, and told off. But he's doing it for a purpose. Believe it or not, he's doing it out of love. Very naturally, the people who have witnessed this are probably asking themselves, why? Why, Jesus? What's he up to? Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, saying and hearing John the Baptist about John the Baptist's death in chapter 14, Jesus withdraws. But here it's full steam ahead after going after these folks. The answer as to why we're told again earlier in the text in Matthew chapter 20. And you don't have to turn to this, I'll just read it to you. This is Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And so, dear friends, today's parable is very intentionally placed in the life of our Lord, not just as a teaching, but as something that he's enacting. Today's parable lays open to everybody what's going on in the vineyard, what's going on with the leaders and with God's people. And we see in the parable itself, number one, that God cares for his people. Fences, wine presses, a tower, these are hard things to do. And there's actually all sorts of scholarship that you can dig into, and I encourage you to do so as to what those represent, because they too are allegorical. But suffice it to say, for our purposes today, they're all about abundance and protection. What more could the Lord do for his people and no doubt, the words of the prophet Isaiah came to mind. God is invested. Number two, God sends his servants, the prophets, to collect the fruit. What did we say the fruit was? Righteous deeds. Justice. The fruit, indeed, is righteous deeds. And in his homily, St. John Chrysostom writes, By fruit he referred to their obedience demonstrated through their works. Again, in Isaiah chapter 5, what does God find when he comes back to the vineyard? Wild grapes, sour grapes. In today's parable, he finds nothing. 
Of course, Isaiah himself is one of the prophets that's referred to in Jesus' parable today. One of those who were killed by the tenants themselves. And between the servant Malachi and the son coming, we know historically is about 400 years. And what I find most fascinating is the rationale that the wicked tenants have in mind for killing the son. It's really quite absurd when you think about it. Look with me particularly today in today's gospel at verse 38 and 39 in chapter 21. Verse 38 and 39. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And the twist, of course, is that Jesus is both the Son of God and God the owner, for he's God himself. But what is this idea that they have that somehow in killing the Son they're going to inherit? That doesn't make much sense at all, does it? Jesus then quotes to them Psalm 118, verse 22, which if, you don't, if you're not familiar with what's going on allegorically, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. When he, when he says to them, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here we have the tenants killing the son in the parable. And of course, we have Jesus in Jerusalem come to die in reality, right? As history goes. And what does Jesus have the chief priests and the leaders say to him in the verse that we just skipped? He has them read their own sentence. He has them read their own sentence. He has them condemn themselves. Do you see it? Let's look together. Again, verse 39 of today's gospel. When they took him and threw him, then they took him, that is the son, and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus then quotes Psalm 118, and then we go to verse 43 where he explains it. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What's going on here? Jesus is having them read their own condemnation as a warning to themselves. Unless you too repent, you're going to be crushed for your unrighteousness, for your unrighteous deeds, for the crimes that you are committing. We know the end of the story, and so does Jesus, by the way. We know that from what he said way back in chapter 20 about being raised again. 
We know that he sits on high, reigning over his kingdom, and he'll come forth to judge the living and the dead. But indeed, not long after Jesus' death and resurrection, destruction does come to Jerusalem, doesn't it? We know from history that Emperor Vespasian comes, sieges the city, crushes it, and not one stone remains upon another as the temple is destroyed, forever ending the old covenant. The old covenant. Forever ending and dismembering the Jewish leadership from the Old Testament. And there's great mourning and great sorrow. But that's not the end of the story, is it? For indeed, the vineyard is taken from the old tenants and given to new tenants. And who is the new tenants? Who replaces the twelve tribes? The twelve apostles. Who replaces the old vineyard? The new vineyard. Those found to be united in Christ. Those found united to him as his vine and his branches. And indeed, it's a glorious thing for not just is that Gentiles, but it's Jews too. For there were Jews also that became part of the new vineyard. Notice, this is not a condemnation of the Jewish people that Jesus is doing here. Uh, That's really important, right? This is not a condemnation of the Jewish people. This is a condemnation of the corrupt leadership, of the utterly devoid of virtue leadership of the Old Testament people. And that's not any surprise to your common everyday Jew, by the way. They knew that about the chief priests and the scribes. Why do you think they're fleeing to repentance? Why do you think they're fleeing to John the Baptist at the beginning of the gospel? Because they know this to be true. And so how do we apply this to our world today? Far from unmitigated rejoicing, it should sober us. For when we look at this passage, we see the foolhardiness of the religious leaders. What fools, it's easy to say. How did they not see it coming, we think? And yet, unredeemed humanity has not changed. What's caused the wicked tenants to be wicked has not changed. Certainly, we can say that they're as sinful as we in their state of original sin, except that Christ has made a change and has made a change in us. And that change in us brings about fruit, brings about deeds, not by our own merit, not by our own works, but merely because Christ is letting us be obedient to himself. Now, friends, with that in mind, turn back to the collect that we prayed at the beginning of the service. Keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in continual godliness, that through your protection it may be free from all other, from all adversities, and devoutly serve you in good works to the glory of your name. Do you see how that prayer ties directly to this passage? That it's only by the grace of God, it's only by his cleansing, protecting, and defending his church that we are able to be worthy tenants. 
And so, friends, in that power, we too have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant against ingratitude, against presumption, against short-sightedness. For without God's grace, and without being connected to that day by day, we too become wretched tenants of the vineyard. Begin with yourself and ask yourself about that ingratitude. For being ungrateful to God is a dangerous thing to the soul. Everything that the owner does in the vineyard is for us, for you, for us together as St. Anselm. He's given us this beautiful place to worship. He's given us brothers and sisters who are anxious to learn about him through his word and sacraments. He's given us both materially and spiritually. He's dug wine presses, erected fences, and given us towers over the past nine years as a congregation. And the most important thing, of course, is that he's given us his son as the foundation of our work. Not just to save us from hell, but to help us in executing the vineyard, in walking forth in partnership with him in the works of good fruit. But if we're not careful, we can cut ourselves off from that life by ingratitude, presumption, and short-sightedness. Why, does it, why is it, do you suppose, that every Sunday when we come before the altar of our Lord, before receiving bread and wine, his spiritual body and blood, we pray the prayer of humble access? And why is it that that prayer begins with, we do not presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness. If only that was more of the truth of our lives than a mere aspiration, dear friends. But the truth is that we presume all the time. We treat space, one another, our worship and our prayer, and yes, our study poorly. We're never as humble as we ought to be. We presume so much on the good things that the church of the church, choosing to pick apart, to begrudge, to complain, taking apart what God's given us, looking at ourselves. We presume upon his good will and his good grace when we do that. In 1967, a man named Charles Hummel published a short book called The Tyranny of the Urgent. Some of you might be familiar with it. The Tyranny of the Urgent. It's a booklet all about short-sightedness and presumption. Letting the urgent things in our life dictate our life and displace the important things in our life. What you might not know is that Hummel was also heavily involved in inner varsity. Right? And so he wasn't just writing for the business world. But sometimes we bring the things that are presumptuous into our world. Hummel writes this, The root of all sin is self-sufficiency, independence from the rule of God. When we fail to wait prayerfully for God's guidance and strength, we're saying with our actions, if not our words, that we do not need him. How much of our service 
is actually a going it alone? And that's a question that sums up those three points of short-sightedness, of presumption, and of ingratitude. All in one sentence, one question really, how much of our service is actually going it alone? And so, dear Christian, in your work in the vineyard, whether it's here, in ministries, or out there in service to the world in the name of Christ, or in your very attitude and worship, how much of it are you going alone? How much of it are you doing in your own strength? How much of you are you not seeing the provision that's been made for you? It strikes at the heart, that question. Because, of course, what Hamo is really saying is that pride is the root of all sin, which we know from St. Augustine and others. And so, when we look at this passage, friends, yes, we can see it as God's historic judgment upon the Jewish leaders of the Old Testament. But we also must see it as a warning to us that if indeed, as Revelation says, we're not faithful, the lampstand will be removed, to use another image. If we're not faithful to the Lord and His calling, staying united to Him, dwelling and abiding in Him as the vine and the branches, then we too are in danger. Not of, not of losing our salvation, that's not what I'm saying, but we're in danger of being useless tenants and then wicked tenants. And so, friends, meditate on this parable, for it's a meditation of humility for all Christians, that every Christian might press on higher, to higher ground, being grateful and coming before the presence of the Lord with a humble heart and a willing spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.